If you don't know who that is, that is David Platt. He's the president of our International Mission Board. Uh, if you're not familiar with who the International Mission Board is, it is a group that was founded by the Southern Baptist Convention to help us to be able to partner to send out missionaries. And this month we have begun our Lottie Moon Christmas offering. Um, I got to reading about Lottie Moon this week. I found out that she was a missionary who went to China in 1873 at the age of 32 and served there for 39 years. And while she was there, she began to write back to the American church, challenging the church to take up the call of the Great Commission and to send more workers. And it was after her death that her challenge was heeded through the creation of the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. Our goal this year as a, as a church is $20,000. We're hoping and praying that our church will give $20,000 that would be sent directly to missionaries on the field, as you heard in that video. And I'm asking, I'm challenging our church to begin to pray now. What would God have you to give uh, so that we could see the gospel change the world? This morning, and I, I ask you to turn to Acts chapter 11. We're going to be looking at a church that changed the world. The church at Antioch. And as you, as you likely know, the book of Acts is the story of the spread of the gospel message from those, those, that handful of believers who was following Christ at his resurrection to this time at the end where the, the gospel begins to explode across the known world. And in, in Acts chapter 11, we read of the beginning of the church of Antioch. Just so you can know a little bit about the city, Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire, behind only Rome and Alexandria. It had become this city that was sort of a melting pot of ethnicity, so in a way it was kind of like America. It was a, a city of about a half million people, mixed of Greeks and Romans and Jews and Persians and Arabs, but at the same time it was a very pagan city. It was a city that was defined by sexual perversion. There was a temple just outside the city that was, was dedicated to Diana, and there was all these sex, this sexual stuff that was going on there, temple prostitutes and all kinds of disgusting things. In a way, it was almost like this was Las Vegas of the Roman Empire. But in the midst of all this diversity, in the midst of this sensuality and, and the immorality, God created a fertile ground for the gospel to take root. He created a launching pad for Christianity to spread to the rest of the world. And so I want us to examine the beginning of the church of Antioch and, and, and what characterized this church and see just why they were a world-changing church and what we can learn from it as well. And so the first thing I want us to see is that a world-changing church spreads the gospel. Let's look in verse 19. We're going to read down through verse 21. It said, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And so these few verses record the first few days, the beginning, the birth, the infancy of this church in the city of Antioch. And here are these men and women who were driven from their homes because of persecution, who as they were driven out, trusted in their faith in God and began to spread the gospel message. And they began to see lives change and a city began to turn upside down. 
But here in this text, in, this, in these few verses, we need to see two things taking place, really. First, these men in Acts chapter 11 had begun to share the gospel with everyone, it tells us here. Not merely the Jews. If you were to go back to the book of Acts and you were beginning to read from the beginning of the book of Acts, what you would see is this, is that Jesus' followers had, had begun by focusing on sharing the gospel with the Jewish people. That that was their first priority, was to share the gospel with the Jewish people. And then along the way, you begin to see them turn and begin to share the gospel with what, were, what are called God-fearing Gentiles. You see this a couple chapters before, Acts chapter 11, where Cornelius is led to the Lord and his household is led to the Lord. He is defined as a God-fearing Gentile. But here in this passage, we're told this. It says that there were those who were only sharing with the Jews, but these men of Cyprus and Cyrene who came to Antioch were sharing with the Hellenists also. Now, a Hellenist was a Greek-speaking Roman citizen. These were absolute pagans. These were not God-fearers. These were not men or women who were searching for the answer to what the Old Testament scriptures said. They had no knowledge of any of this. These were your run-of-the-mill, absolute, average pagans who most likely worshipped gods from the Roman mythology, the, 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 all the different gods that the Romans worshipped. But instead, these Antioch believers crossed over the barrier and began to share the gospel with whoever they came in contact with. And God showed his blessing because they began to respond. But there's something else we need to see here. What is also significant about this passage is who is doing the evangelizing. If you were to look back into Acts, the beginning of Acts, what you'll notice is the only people that were sharing the gospel up until this point were the apostles, the prophets, the deacons. But this is the first instance where we're specifically told that someone who did not have a position in the church was spreading the gospel. These were average believers, average men and women who did not have theology degrees, they did not have positions, they did not have special training, they didn't have a faith training outline in their pocket, they didn't have an EE outline to go through. They were just believers who had a heart on fire for the Lord who had experienced such a transformation in their life that they wanted others to experience that same transformation. And in a sense, we can thank the church of Antioch for our church. Because in reality, this is the first church in Scripture that was a Gentile church. This, that was a church not made up of Jewish believers. And like I said earlier, this was a launching pad that God used, a stepping stone for bringing the gospel to the non-Jewish people, to you and to I. And so to call ourselves a world-changing church, I believe we must commit ourselves just like they did to be people of the gospel. That the gospel would be on our lips. That the gospel would be a part of our lives. That people would look at us, they would hear our words, and they would hear the love of Jesus, the testimony of Christ coming from us. Now we read that the Jerusalem church began to catch wind of what was going on. And we're told in verse 22, this is what it said, The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Now Barnabas whose name means the son of encouragement, was really the perfect man to be sent in this situation. We're told that he was an extremely generous believer, an extremely great man. Church history tells us that he might have even been one of the 70 who was sent out by Jesus during his ministry in order to go do miracles and to minister, if you remember that part from the Gospels. 
And what we read in the next few verses is that we see that, that we begin to see the characteristics of this world-changing church, a church that lives out the word. Look in verse 23. It says, when he came and saw the grace of God, this is Barnabas talking about it here, he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. So notice what all we heard in those verses there. We're told that Barnabas comes to the church at Antioch and he sees the grace of God. He sees the life-changing power of the gospel at work there. And he turns to these people and he sees that they're beginning to become faithful to the Lord. They're beginning to follow his command, the Lord's commands. And he says, remain faithful to the Lord. People's lives are being changed. And then we also read that Barnabas goes, he leaves that city and he goes and finds Saul. Because he realizes these people need to hear the Lord's teachings. And so he brings Saul there and we're told that for a year they set up shop and they co-pastored this body of believers to begin to try to bring them into greater maturity. And so here was this young group of believers who had really experienced true life change. And we're told here that it wasn't in the church at Jerusalem where the name Christian came about, but it was in Antioch. And when you think about this... Consider how pagan of a city Antioch was. And how small of a fraction these believers would have been in that city. Yet their lives were so different that the pagans in Antioch had to come up with a name to label these people. That they couldn't put their finger exactly on who these people were. And so they said, we're just going to have to call them Christ people, Christ men, Christians because they're so much like this Christ that they speak of. And so Barnabas was finding a church that was living out the word. But I want to be careful to make sure we understand this. Do you know what Barnabas didn't find? Perfect believers. He didn't find perfect people. It's likely that these young Christians were a little rough around the edges. Consider that they didn't come from a Jewish background where they were obeying the laws of the Old Testament. These were people that were probably caught up in the lifestyle of Antioch who had come to Christ. And so it's likely that they were still struggling with their old sinful habits. And I believe that's why Barnabas said, remain, continue to be faithful to the Lord because he began to see them turn and he didn't want to discourage them. And he didn't want to lay a burden of legalism on them. He, kept, he was wanting to encourage them to keep moving in the right direction. Because even in the infancy of their faith, they were beginning to respond and want to follow the Lord with gladness. And I think it's significant that we're told that Barnabas went and got Saul and they began to teach for a year. You know, sometimes as mature believers, as people who may have been following Jesus for years and years and years, we can forget how long it took for the Lord to mature us. We can forget how long it took for the Lord to straighten our own lives out. And we can look at younger believers and we can get frustrated and think, why haven't they gotten it yet? And I think this passage encourages us that we need to have patience. And that when we see God working, we need to let God work out the timing. There was a book I read a couple, maybe about a year ago, 
called Infinite Journey. It was by a man named Andrew Davis. It's a book on Christian discipleship. And in that book, he proposes that spiritual growth comes because of a cycle that takes place in our lives. And this is the easiest way for me to describe it is this. Um, just think of the word, think of Kentucky Fried Chicken, KFC, action. Now, here's what I mean. Throw that next slide up there. It says, knowledge, knowledge, faith, character, action. Andrew Davis said it like this. He said that knowledge, that when we begin to gain spiritual knowledge, we begin to gain scriptural knowledge, it leads to a growth of faith in our lives. That we begin then, once we have that knowledge, we begin to trust the word of God. And faith begins to grow in us. And then as our faith begins to grow, guess what happens? Our character begins to change. Because as we trust the promises of God and we heed his warnings, we begin to have the mind of Christ. We begin to think like Jesus. We begin to have compassion like Jesus. And then as our, as our character begins to change, guess what happens? It leads to action. That we want to live out that faith. And then what naturally comes is this, is that as we are living out our faith, guess what happens next? We begin to have a desire for more knowledge of the word. And so knowledge feeds faith, which produces character, which leads to action, which causes a desire for knowledge, which feeds faith, which produces character. And as you can see, this goes on and on and on. And I really do believe this is true. I've seen this in the lives of the teenagers that I've ministered to. I've seen them work through this process as they come to know the word that many times it doesn't immediately lead to action. Instead, it takes time for them to grow. And a church that is living out the word, a church that is living out a, a desire to want to, to wanna be like Christ is going to have believers who are all along that stage. Who are at different steps in those cycles. And we as believers must love each other. We must encourage each other to continue to grow day by day. Third thing we need to see from this passage is that a world-changing church gives sacrificially. Look in verse 27. Let's read down through verse 30. It says, Now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. And so in the midst of all this growth, here's all this excitement. All these, all these lives being changed. God sends prophets to this church. And unfortunately, their message was not too bright. Their message was there is a famine coming. And so what, we not, what Luke doesn't write here in the book of Acts is that Agabus told them to take up a collection. Instead, we read that the church made that decision on their own to say who, that everyone, according to their ability, we're told here, gave so that their brothers in Christ in Judea would not suffer. But you want to know what else we need to pay attention to here? What did the prophecy that Agabus said, said include? He said there would be a famine in all the land, which includes Antioch. And so here is a church who knew that a famine was coming that was going to include them, yet they gave so that others wouldn't suffer. They defied every sense of logic. 
That, that in a time when it would, it would have been easy for them to say, oh man, a famine's coming, I better stockpile. I better just worry about me and mine. I don't have any extra money, I, I, gotta, I gotta keep this grain, I gotta keep this stuff for me because there's a famine coming. Instead, they gave. They did what didn't make sense. Because many times, God's word and God's love doesn't make sense. We were talking about this a couple weeks ago in one of our, our, our high school boys Sunday school class. And how so many times obeying the word of God is illogical. And it's easier, it, it can be easier for us to fall into the trap of thinking, well, we're just supposed to do the logical thing all the time. Just do what makes sense. But so many times God's word challenges us to be illogical. And there can be times in our life when we say, you know what, I've got bills to pay. My kids need braces. Oh, we're signed up for a new, there's a new sports league coming up. That's going to cost us some money. Oh, man, the water heater just went out. The dryer broke. I've got to pay off that car. And we can think of all the excuses in the world as to why we need to hold on to what we have. But God calls us to respond just as this church did. And to sacrifice even to the point of that it's painful to us so that we can see him work in others. If you were to travel to Havelock, North Carolina, you would find there the U.S. Marine Corps air station called Cherry Point. Now it's close to some of the Atlantic Ocean's most, uh, most beautiful beaches there. But when visitors come to Havelock, what they don't hear first is the sound of waves in the ocean. Instead, they hear the sounds of fighter jets. They hear the screech and the roar of those jets flying through the sky. And since 1940, that's been the case in that city. To the point where they erected that sign right there outside the city. Pardon our noise, it's the sound of freedom. There's a military website that explained it like this. Those sounds are music to the ears of the Marines who fight on the ground. For there is nothing Marines like better to have than Marine artillery behind them, Marine intelligence in front of them, and Marine aircraft overhead. And so those residents look at that sound and think of that sound as a joyful sacrifice. To say we are glad and we will gladly accept what goes on here because we know what it means for someone else. And that is what God has called us to. Specifically, right now, the Lottie Moon Christmas offering represents a chance for us to give sacrificially so that others may receive the gospel. Others in lands that we may never have the privilege of stepping foot in. Statistics from the International Mission Board tell us that there are over 2.8 billion, with a B, people in this world with little or no knowledge of Jesus Christ. I'm not even talking about people who are just lost. I'm talking about 2.8 billion people who have never even heard the name of Jesus, who have never even had the opportunity to respond to the gospel because they've never even heard it. And folks, we as the American church must see that number as unacceptable. It's heartbreaking to think that there are that many people on this planet 2,000 years after the resurrection of Jesus who have still yet to hear the good news of our Savior. Folks, we are called to give so that others may have a chance to know our Lord. If the gospel is real, if hell is real, 
If, if Jesus Christ is truly the only way, which we believe that to be true, we believe the Bible teaches that, then what else can we do but to respond sacrificially to God's command? But it's not just about giving, folks. We learn here that a world-changing church sends out missionaries. In the passage that we read in, in, in Acts chapter 11, we, we find out that they collected this offering and they gave it to Barnabas and Saul, who would become Paul, you know, and they sent them off to give that offering. But that wasn't the only time that this church sent out missionaries. Flip over to Acts chapter 13. And let's read verses 1 through 3. <clears throat> It says, Now there was in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, the member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And remember how earlier I said that God used this church to be stepping stones to the Gentile world, right? Well, here's a church that was started by the most unusual of believers, believers who were pushed there because of persecution. They had no other reason to be there than the fact that they were driven out of Judea because of the persecution that arose over, over Stephen. That here is this church that was created by the world's first missionaries that then became the world's first mission-sending church. And if you really step back and think about the, the change that took place because of these two men, and even more specifically because of Paul, it really blows your mind. Think about the fact that because they responded with obedience and said, we will send out Barnabas and Saul, as the Holy Spirit has called us. Think about as we read through the rest of the book of Acts, the number of churches that were started. Think about the sheer number of miles that the gospel traveled because these people were obedient to send out their people. Here's the truth we got to catch in this. Kingdom-minded, gospel-centered churches who are truly committed to changing this world do not hold on to what they have tightly. Instead, they give it away. That we do not cling to things as if we can, we can hold them forever, but instead we give ourselves at the feet of Jesus to be used however he would see fit. And that includes sending our people to be the hands and feet of the Lord. Whether that be for one day, going down to Calvary Rescue Mission and feeding the men there. Whether that be for one week, going to Iowa to minister in those communities. Going to Arizona to minister to the Navajo people. Going down to inner city Memphis whether that be for a month, whether that be for a lifetime, that we would be people who would say, God, everything that we have, even our lives, we lay at your feet. Sometimes as a church, I think it's good for us to think about the what if question. This is what I mean. What if we became even more committed to being a church that wants to see the world changed. What could we see take place in our families 
in our communities, in our city, in our nation, in our world, if we became more faithful to the Great Commission? Who knows what God could do? And let me just say this. Let me just interject this because I'm the family ministry guy here on staff. If you're a parent, you need to hear this. I don't know if you know this, but research has shown that the most influential factor in determining if your children will continue in the faith when they become an adult is not how good the youth group is. It's not the number of Bible studies you put them in. It's if you stood side by side and served the Lord with your kid. That is the most influential factor. Did you take your kids on the mission field and be the hands and feet of Jesus. And I'm not just talking about a mission trip, folks. I'm talking about did you find ways to serve others for the sake of the gospel and your kids got to see it. Because at that point, your kids say, this faith is more than just something we talk about. This is something that is real. Something that has changed my parents' life. And I want it to change mine as well. So what if... But here's another question we need to ask. What if we don't? That's the more haunting question, isn't it? What if we became complacent? What if we didn't make those steps to sacrifice? If that took place, then who won't hear the gospel? Those are the things we have to think about. We'll never know the full answer to those questions but we can do something to influence the answer by becoming a church that is even more committed to seeing the gospel reach the ends of the earth. Would you pray with me? Father, your word is true. In the example that we read here of this church that changed the world is an example that we know you gave us. We know that you inspired Luke to write this chapter so that it can inspire us to want to see our, our city changed, to want to see our neighborhoods, our streets become more places, to become places that are, that are full of people that are worshiping you. God, I pray that we would be a people who would give sacrificially, that we would be a people that would send out missionaries, that we would be a people who would live out the word be a people who, the, who, who the, the gospel regularly comes out of our mouths as we, as we meet neighbors and as we talk to our friends and as we share with our coworkers, that they would hear us and they would see us and they would say, that person is different. That person must be a Christian because all they want to think about is this Christ that they serve. Father, I pray that you would do a work in our lives. God, if there is a person in this room that does not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, I pray that day would be that day they would surrender their heart and life to Jesus, that they would receive the forgiveness of sins that only He can provide, and they would surrender their lives to the Lordship of Christ. I pray that today they would walk this aisle so they could find out more about that and could make that decision known. And Father, for us believers in this room, God, I pray that at this time of invitation that you would use this time to work in our hearts and our lives. God, we know that every person in this room will make a decision of some sort today. Whether they walk an aisle or not, God, I pray that we would make the right decisions. 
to be even more faithful to you and to your word and how it commands us to live. And it's in Christ's name we do pray.